I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast series explores the theme of second chance. We raise questions about who deserves a second chance, who decides who gets a second chance, and what a second chance actually means. We speak to people from all walks of life about their experiences, including those who have been given a second chance, and some who you might believe are beyond deserving a second chance. Before I introduce my guest today, I wanted to ask you to support the Raphael Rowe Foundation. The mission of the foundation is to end dehumanisation of people in prison and build safer societies. We work with those who administer prison systems throughout the world and inspire them to abolish dehumanising, degrading and dangerous practices, putting more emphasis on the health, education and rehabilitation of those in their care. In many prisons across the world, basic human rights are not being met and systems are collapsing, causing overcrowding, rising violence, suicides and drug issues, making it difficult to rehabilitate inmates and reintegration back into society. I know this because if any of you have watched my Netflix series, Inside the World's Toughest Prisons, you would have seen what I'm talking about. If you want to help, please visit the website at www.rafaelrowfoundation.org and register your support for the work we're doing. And if you can afford to make a donation to help our mission, please click on the donate link on the website, which will take you to our GoFundMe campaign. Thank you. Girl One, whose identity I can't reveal, has been given lifelong anonymity for the sexual crimes she endured while a teenager in the well-known Oxford Bullfinch case. She has chosen to share her story now to help other young people who may find themselves in a similar situation. 
She claims the police and social services let her down more than once and that she is still picking up the pieces. She talks to me about her dysfunctional childhood and how she ended up in care homes from the age of 12 years old. How the care system was not an easy journey and why she looked for love and attention in all the wrong places, which was when she met the men that abused her. For three years she was trapped, punished physically, mentally and emotionally. The seven men convicted for crimes against her and the abuse of many other girls were given long sentences, including life imprisonment. But years on, and girl one is still looking for answers from the police and authorities, she says, let her down. Apologies about the unavoidable background noise during this interview, but our guest was looking after her daughter at the time she was talking to me. Girl one, that's what they um, called you in, in the court case. Um, and that's what I'm going to refer to you to throughout this interview, just for the listener's benefit, because we can't identify you. Tell me why we can't identify you, girl one. Because of the seriousness of the the court case, um, I was given lifelong anonymity. But I think that's a standard thing for anybody who has been a victim of any sexual crime um i think that's a a standard thing so yeah i was given the title girl one and it's kind of stuck really everything that i've done since i've always been referred to as as girl one as well so Um, so have you have have you never you've never been identified publicly in the case other than the, the 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 name that they they gave no one's ever seen your face no one's ever are unaware of your real name apart from those who are involved in the case directly. Yeah, that's right. How, how do you feel about that? Part of me is relieved, but then there's also part of me that thinks, why should I hide? At the, at the time, I, straight after the trial, I was still carrying a lot of shame about what had happened, and I felt a lot of almost guilt. I almost felt guilty that I had put these men away for life. To It's 10 years now since the trial, and I've only just started to lose some of that, that shame and that feeling like I'm a bad person. Why, why, why did you feel like that? Because you weren't the one that was... You were the one that was the, the victim here. Well, that comes from years before, obviously, the police came to me in 2011-2012 and asked me what had happened years before in the early 2000s. And there was a period of time where as a young girl, sort of 12, 13, 14, 15, where I was going missing from children's homes and I was disappearing for days at a time and I was being found with older men in a bad state, drugged up, drunk, you name it, with injuries. And the police... And social workers really felt like it was just a product of my bad life choices, my lifestyle, this was my doing, my choosing, and that I just needed to stop what I was doing. They called me a liar when I did try and report it. They refused me medical care, um, all kinds of things. So for a long, long time, I felt that what had happened to me was my own fault. 
and I'd lived with that for years and years and years and years and I carried that and the abuse stopped when I was sort of 15 and I managed to get myself into work and I had a fairly decent job and I built a life for myself and then the police suddenly came out of nowhere and said actually do you know what we want to hear what happened to you now and I'm thinking well when it was actually going on you called me a liar you told me it didn't exist. You told me that it wasn't happening. It was a figment of my imagination. I was just being dramatic. There was lots and lots of things that were said. And so it was really difficult. It was really difficult. And they applied a lot of pressure on me because I was the first one to actually make a statement and put it on me that it was almost my duty now to speak to them to save other young girls um I was just 18 19 at the time and I don't I looking back now as a as a 30 something year old I think that that in itself was also bad because they they shouldn't have put that on me they shouldn't have put that pressure and that that level of kind of goaded into it in a way I felt like I had a responsibility to other to other young people when really the responsibility was on the police <laughs> social services to have done to have done the right thing years before so anyway I went ahead and the statement process took some months because we had to go through years and years and years and unpick all of those wounds unpick everything that had happened the very things that they had told me that were my own fault years before and it was really, really difficult. So then about a year or so later, we get to the trial and it's in the old Bailey. I didn't want to have a screen because I felt like the only way I was going to be able to get through a week on the stand was to look at the men. I had to look at them. And so I, I, I braved it out and I did a week on the stand, having every part of my life scrutinised, ripped apart. Because that's what they do. That's what the defence counsel do. And even the prosecution, to a point, were, were were opening everything up. And it was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. But I got through it, and then the other five girls got through it. And in the end, they were found guilty in the May of 2013. And uh, the month after, we were invited to go for the sentencing of these men. And... Quite a few of them, out of the eight, were given life with long minimum terms, 20 years, 17 years. You don't even get that for murder. So it hit me, it hit me that actually what they had done to me and, and the other girls as well was bad enough to get longer than you get for murder. And it, it walloped me because I felt like, oh, I don't know, it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome. But my first, my first reaction was... <gasps> Oh my God! What have I done? They're gonna—they're gonna lose everything. They're gonna be in prison for a very long time, and that's because of me. And then came the realization that obviously what had happened was was as bad as what I I had thought it was. But social services and police had downplayed for years. And it sent me into this into this sort of spiral of, of confusion and anger and bitterness. And I thought, well, why? Like, why did they tell me that this didn't happen <laughs> when it did happen? And the police are all celebrating. They're all like, yeah, no, no, justice has been done. No, justice hasn't been done. Because you, as the police, have, for lack of a better word, exploited me 
as much as they did because you didn't do what you, I needed you to do when I was a kid and now you've you've used me to get justice and you're all whooping and cheering and patting yourselves on the back when I'm falling to bits here because you didn't listen because you didn't do what I needed you to do as a child and then in terms of like aftercare and and the gravity of what had happened police and social services didn't seem to grasp it they seemed to think that a public sorry on the telly and the the the, the reeling out of the same thing they've said about every case Rochester, Derby, Telford you know they're all similar and you hear the same things every single time like oh you know we're gonna learn lessons we're sorry sorry like sorry is a is a word that you say if you knock somebody's into somebody in the shop or something sorry is 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 i don't think sorry really cuts it because you made me feel like i'd lost my mind you made me feel like i was a bad person for years i felt like i was a bad person like i was this bad kid I was a bad person, I was a bad kid and I had bad life choices and all along everything I've been saying was the truth and they've got words for it now, they've got acronyms for it now, it's called CSE, Child Sexual Exploitation, County Lines, Drug Dealing, all of these things that I was telling them that were happening, they were telling me it wasn't happening and now you see it all the time like we're making this our priority, it's like yeah but what about the people who it's too late for? What about what about people, girls like me who who had our lives destroyed, partly because of those men and the disgusting things that they did, but also partly because of the inaction of the very people that are meant to protect you, and that didn't happen. And it's not just to me, but many, many, many young ladies have had their lives destroyed with this exact same thing up and down the country, and I get annoyed and and cross because we i just feel like we're just forgotten about like they think that they can just say sorry on the telly and they're going to learn lessons and that be the end of it but what, what does that how does that do before we go into the detail of exactly what happened to you just tell me a little bit about your upbringing where, where, where did you grow up before this all happened you mentioned on a couple of occasions that social services care homes were involved in your life. Just give me a little bit of background uh, uh, about your upbringing, how you ended up in a care home. It's quite difficult because I don't, I don't like to sort of say anything too negative <laughs> about my parents, but I would say it was dysfunctional. And I think that sometimes people shouldn't be together I maybe with my mum and dad there was a lot of arguments and there was a lot of things that were not good there were a lot of things that I look back on and think that's not what I would want my children to see or hear and then I ended up in care when I was 12 13 it's not it wasn't my parents fault um I mean going through the care system is horrible I think there's a stigma attached to that I think that there is like once you're in that system or maybe not so much now but 20 years ago I think you were almost just written off anyway as soon as you enter that kind of system you're tarred with a black mark you almost have a black mark on your name and it's like you're not going to do anything you're not going to amount to anything and so I was already a very I was an unhappy young person at 12 13 I was very unhappy and I think what I was looking for outside of the family home was love 
I think that's what I was looking for was 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 love and somebody to I don't know almost care about me and see me as a person and that's what those men did that's what those men did I mean now it'd be easy for people like that because there's mobile phones and apps that they can talk to kids on but then it was very much like on the on the street so I was hanging around in the city centre bunking off which I shouldn't have been doing but um I was in my school uniform and uh they approached me and offered me cigarettes and um flattered me with attention really um and played the long game some months of 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 that where they sort of befriended me and gained my trust and uh I you know went off and started smoking weed with them having beer with them um, you were 12, 13 years old and these were adult men? Men in their early 20s. And I was just flattered by the attention. I thought, why do these really cool guys in their nice cars want to talk to me? Um, but they did and they played the long game. And it was months and months and months of this kind of backing and forthing. And they'd text me and I'd meet them and they'd drop me back at a reasonable time. And I had to keep it a secret because obviously I knew even at that age, I knew that it, you know, people would tell you, no, 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 no. You shouldn't be out doing this. You shouldn't be out doing that. But I didn't see them as sinister because they were genuinely showing like an interest in me and made me feel like I was special. And yeah, it was, it was at the time it was like, I, I, I had found what I was looking for. I had somebody who actually made me feel like I was worth something and it was months and months and months of that and I'd grown up believing that a paedophile was a man in a flasher mac in the park I was still young enough to have that mindset that you you know the man in the anorak is the man that you avoid not these like nice young men that have spent months flattering me with attention presence you know all the rest of it and so I trusted them I trusted them and um that was a stupid thing to do because obviously time went on and they started to not be the same friends that I'd made months previously. They started to want me to do things that I didn't want to do, that I didn't really understand about, but I quickly came to understand. They were very, very violent and for the next three years, I spent almost every day and every night with them, bar a few, really. I'd, I'd go missing for like over a week at a time, be found or, or return off my own accord. And 24, less than 24 hours later, I was back with them over and over and over again for three years of my life. That was how it played out. Day in, day out. Drugs, heavy drugs, lots of alcohol making me and other girls do things that we didn't want to do and if we didn't then we'd be hurt beaten burnt with stuff literally it was awful I mean I actually went back to my parents house and my mum had to put me in a salt bath because I had so many wounds she didn't know what to do with them I'd been burnt with cigarettes and she had to hold me in a bath to clean it because she didn't know what else to do. They were going septic. I was just always in a poor condition. And the people around me, the, the police, they'd found me with these men multiple times. 
and never arrested them. Never. They never arrested them. They used to ask me things like like if I had stolen a bottle of whiskey or something. Like They're more interested in stuff like that than why I was with these men and what they were doing. There didn't seem to be a real genuine effort to, to, to try and stop it. And later and on I found that? out... Why was that? Why did they, you were so young, you were being exploited by these young men, you were in the care service, your parents were obviously witnessing the abuse that you were going through, the police were victimising you, or criminalising you, why was that? Why did they not take action knowing that you were a young vulnerable girl, as was your friends or the other girls? Personally, I think it's because we were young girls in care and we were already deemed to be a problem just by that alone. But secondly, and a lot of people don't like saying this, but these men were Pakistani men or Muslim men, all of them, facts. And that's not just my case, but a lot of the cases up and down the country where it's organised like this and they've done this for years and years and years and years and years and they made big money off it. I think the police at that time were more worried about exposing something that may then have them called out as being racist. I think that was the real issue and that the police didn't want to act on something that could open a can of worms. And so it was easier just to brush these naughty kids to one side and blame it on their own life choices. I look back. And I'm furious sometimes because I've got my own children. And if one of my children come home to me with black finger marks around their neck, I would want to know who the f***ing hell had done that to them and why. The police ignored all of our injuries. Or not just me, other girls as well. Some of them serious injuries. Time and time and time again. There was no questions being asked. It was just, oh, well, if you're going to get yourself into these situations... What? And then they had the audacity years later to go, oh, sorry. Sorry? Sorry. My life was ruined. My family's life was ruined. Like, I don't think you can just get over something like that. I don't think they necessarily understand the gravity of what those men did and the impact it's had forever. And sorry just doesn't cut it for me. Sorry doesn't, doesn't, doesn't even, <laughs> I've said time and time and time again, like there needs to be proper accountability for people who are in a position to do something and did nothing. I mean, on a, like illegally, if you, for example, uh, are driving somebody away who has committed a murder, you can be charged on joint enterprise. So, by a similar kind of logic, why is it then that the people who must have known, because I can't understand how they didn't know anything, because not just me, other girls had said stuff as well. There was a real picture there of what was happening, but yet nobody did anything. Why are those people not being investigated? Why are they not being made to answer, why did you not do this? Why did you not do that? Why is there no accountability? Why are they allowed just to carry on with their with their day-to-day -day lives and their jobs and have to say nothing. I just don't think that's right. I think justice in a situation like this has to be almost like a two-stage thing. It has to be those men are put away, but actually the people who failed 
to act and fail to protect vulnerable children also need to be held accountable for that. And you don't believe that they've been held accountable? I mean, just going back slightly, when you were being sexually and physically abused by these men and it was obvious to anybody who came into contact with you that that's what you and other girls were experiencing, there did come a point where these individuals were arrested because, as you mentioned, there was a trial. How did that come about there? Because at some point somebody believed what you'd been you know, not just physically showing, but had been saying? No, what happened was, initially, they were arrested in 2006 because I'd made a complaint, one of many, but for whatever reason, this complaint was upheld and I can't really remember the ins and the outs of it because it was a long time ago and I was young. But within 24 hours, they'd got me to drop it and I'd said, no, 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 I'm not doing this. And the police didn't really ask why that was. Was I scared? Was I, There had to be a reason why I was dropping it. But no, anyway, they just let me drop it. And then not long after that, it, the, the abuse kind of come to an end all of its own anyway. I had grown up enough that I wasn't really useful to them men anymore. And I'd also come to the realisation that if I didn't pull my finger out and make something in my life, then I was only going to go one way, and that wasn't a good way. So, yeah, like I say, I I got a job and ended up getting quite a good job, a well-paid job for my age, and really worked hard, did a college course. I I burnt the candle both ends and really, really tried to flip everything around and make good of myself. And I was pretty successful at that, and it wasn't until I was 19... The police literally emailed me. They just emailed me. I got an email to say, hello, this is PC. I wondered if you'd be um, able to speak to me about what happened back in 2004, 5, 6. And I'm thinking, why now? Why now? All that time, all that time of nothing. And it was only because they were putting pressure on me to speak that I then eventually said, yeah, I'll, I'll speak, I'll tell you what happened, and make an official statement. And then they were arrested. That was 2012 that they were arrested. So there was this whole period of time in between where there was nothing. I'd just been left. But that was obviously triggered by other victims of these these men. I think what had happened was is the police were suddenly under pressure because these cases were popping up in like Rochdale, Rotherham. And I think pressure from, I hate to say it again, I'll probably get roasted for this, but like there's uh, there was a lot of um, noise being made by groups like the EDL, other sort of right-wing groups were making a lot of noise about this at that time, saying, this is happening here, this is happening there. And I think it was just purely that pressure, A, because there was other cases in other places in the country that were similar, and also all this kind of noise that was happening. Um, It sort of forced their hand, really. And I know now, since the trial, because of the serious case review and other bits and bobs that I've done scouring the internet, that they think that this was going on since the late 90s in Oxford and carried on all the way through. For 20-something years, those men and their predecessors, you know, there was, it was happening for a long time and it had just been ignored. So, yeah, there was a lot. They reckon something like 300-something girls over that period of time that that had happened to. Just in Oxfordshire alone, 
so they were finally arrested in 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 2012 and i think it was just if it hadn't have been these other cases up north and if there hadn't have been noise being made by the likes of people like tommy robinson and other such groups i don't think it would have happened i think it'd probably still be happening today because i think they were reluctant to do anything a because they didn't want to open the 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 race can of worms and also b people don't really care about kids in care (laughs) that's how it that's how it feels where are you now so i i hear you when you say you are pursuing holding the authorities uh, 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 you know, making them take responsibility and being held accountable for the neglect at the time when you needed them most. But how are you? I mean, you've got children, you're a parent, you've moved away, you mentioned at the beginning for your own protection initially. Where, where are you at in your life now then? I'm okay, I suppose. I'm just like any other normal mum. Nobody, like the school would know. I sort of just live a very boring, mundane normal mum life I get up I take the kids to school I come home walk the dog I go you know do the shopping I just have a very very normal life and I'm 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 thankful for that really but um there are times and there are days where I feel very sad there are also times and days where I feel very angry especially if sort of similar things come up on the news they haven't done for a while but there was a period of time but there was lots of these cases coming up and that was very hard um, because I feel the pain for those girls as well. I feel sad for them that it was allowed to happen on such a massive scale. So, yeah, it's difficult. I have ups and downs, really. I, I go through periods of time where I can be quite depressed. And so, yeah, things are not always perfect I'm not I'm not always 100% okay (laughs) and I think that a lot of that is to do with the fact that I don't feel like I've got answers I don't feel like I can close the chapter until the authorities give me those answers and I know I may never get the answers that I want but do you not also accept that your taking action and the other girls taking action in the other cases being highlighted has changed the situation that more vulnerable young people like yourself are being protected because safeguards are now being put in place to ensure things like this never happen again I'd like to think so I'd like to think so and I hope that that is what (laughs) what actually happens I hope that if all of us had to go through what we went through for them to now do the right thing, <laughs> then, yeah, that that's great. But are they, A, are they doing that? And B, maybe from a slightly selfish point of view, that doesn't undo 20 years of hurt. This has taken up now two-thirds of my life nearly. And it's not over because I'm still trying to pursue a civil case which seems daft when publicly they spoke out and said, we're sorry, and we want to put this right, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then behind closed doors, they're fighting a legal battle with me. They're fighting a legal battle with me and have been doing so for 10 years. And not just me, other girls as well. I share a solicitor, I think, with a few other people that have been in a similar situation. They've been through a similar trial up and down the country. And, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting it out. 
and I don't think that's right. I don't, I don't think that's right. So publicly you're taking responsibility and saying, yeah, we didn't do enough, we didn't do right by you. But then behind closed doors, they're fighting a legal battle to stop us getting those answers and stuff. You know, it, it doesn't really make sense, does it? How can you say you're sorry and that you want to make things right and then the flip side of that is, oh, actually, no, we're going to fight you, we're going to stop you getting compensation and and answers i don't i just don't i just don't get it it doesn't it doesn't add up what about the the lessons learned what is your message to other parents care workers police officers young vulnerables like yourself now who could take a lesson from your experience what what would your message be what do people need to be aware of well, I think the world is a very different place now as well, and it's a lot different. I wouldn't want to be a teenager now because I think if you are an abusive paedophile, then you've got a sweet shop in terms of social media, and it must be it must be easy for them now to scroll through all these endless social media sites and pick children almost like sweets. They didn't have that when I back, you know. But I would say that just be aware. Know what your children are doing. I'm, my, my oldest, they, they hate me because I am so nosy. I don't let them have online games. <laughs> I don't let them do this. I don't let them do that. And they hate me for it. But um, I just don't think you can be too protective. I don't think you can be too inquisitive I don't think you can there are just some things that should never ever ever be ignored and when a child or a young person tells you something even if it sounds far-fetched there usually will be an element of truth to it and I think that people need to remember that and make sure that even even if they're wrong even if they're they're you know it turns out to be nothing it's better to to look at it and scrutinise it before just saying, no, that didn't happen. I think it's too easy just to write teenagers off as being problematic or dramatic or any number of them things without getting to the root cause of why they're being like that. So, yeah, I would just say be aware. And, and you mentioned that at the time of the trial, how guilty you felt, even though you shouldn't have done. How do you feel about the fact that these men are now in prison serving their life sentences, rightly so? I mean, what what's your thought there? It's a difficult one because I feel some days I wake up and I think, you know, I've got bills to pay. I've got all this life stress that you have to get crack on with. And I think, you know what? They're sat in prison. They've got none of that. They've got three meals a day. They've got a roof over their head. They don't have to pay for it. Happy days for them, really. Are they really being punished? Who really has the life sentence? Because let's face it, I've watched your, your documentaries on Netflix. I've seen what prisons are like in other countries, and they do have it hard. In England, I don't think we necessarily always have it as hard as... It could be in terms of a punishment. So sometimes I get cross and I think, well, are they really being punished? But then I think, no, I think they are away from the people that they love. They're away from their families. They're away from their friends. They don't really have a lot to fill their day. Um, 
and then that I start to sort of feel bad, a bit bad again. And I think, you know what? My, my life was railroaded. My life was ruined. They ruined other girls' lives, but they also ruined their own lives. Was it worth it? Was it worth it for for a bit of money and a few cheap frills? Because they've thrown their own lives away now and destroyed their family's lives. So, yeah. I, I find it quite incredible that you, you, you have, I wouldn't say sympathy, but I, I, I find it incredible that you... You, you don't sound completely bitter and angry about... I mean, I, I get the sense that that comes and goes, um, but I find it incredible that you're not sitting there, girl A, and saying they deserve every second of every moment they spend in herself for what they did to me and the other girls. And I know that's part of your message, but there's also a part of you that kind of is reflective of what happened. And I find that quite incredible. You know, lock them up, throw away the key, don't let them ever see daylight again for what they put you and other girls through but it doesn't sound like that's the beginning and all that there is still a sensibility about the way you think about things not them but just about life in general and they benefit from that in the sense that you're not you know constantly saying they should never get out you know when their life sentence comes to an end after 20 years that they should do another 20 years off the end of that I don't get that sense from you no, I think when that time comes, there's going to be a part of me that will be naturally worried, frightened, scared, because they are scary. And in terms of like, do I just want them to sit and rot for the rest of their lives? No, not really, because I don't think that prison is necessarily the be all and end all in terms of punishment. I think you can punish yourself a lot more than any prison could punish you. And I hope that actually what I'd like to happen maybe is if by them being in prison and then really thinking about what they've done and the impact that it's had on me and the others, I hope that that, that will be their punishment. Them having to live with themselves, finding a way to live with that feeling, to know that you have done something that disgusting and that, that's that that to me is a real punishment because you've got to carry that around with you <laughs> and one day they're going to have to carry that around with them without almost the protection of prison prison provides a certain amount of protection for people like that the outside world does not and i hope that all of this realization comes to them when that time comes and they they're the ones that are going to have to carry that around so yeah well look thank you so much for talking to me um and for your daughter participating in the interview in her own little way just for the listeners to know that she's been with you all this time but thanks for sharing your story and i wish you all the best in trying to pursue what it is that you're trying to pursue and i'm sure you know these things do take a long time but if you don't give up, then somehow, some way, um, you will get the result that you're hoping for. So thank you so much for, for sharing with me and the listeners the horrific story and journey you've been on. Thanks. Cheers very much. Thank you. Please find links below if you or anyone you know needs to reach out for help and support. Please share this episode with your friends, family and colleagues and follow the show for updates about new episodes by just clicking on subscribe. Your support really matters. 
You can also be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments and feedback. If you'd like to sponsor or advertise your service or product on this podcast, please get in touch. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy Second Chance Podcast. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our social media creator is Sophie Warner. This episode was produced by Kim Collicott at Second Chance Podcast and me, your host, Raphael Rowe.